I used to, and I think this is fine when you start, like you just follow like a cookie cutter program because you can't build a better program than this kind of experienced expert individual can for you. But once you've mm -hmm. been following a program for a while, you've got your own experience, you start to learn, hey, like they're programming, I don't know, it's five sets here. It's like, I can't even recover from five sets. Let's do three. Or they've said to do a back squat. That doesn't do anything for my quads. And I really want to prioritize quads. I'm going to do a hack squat here. You start to learn your body, what suits you well. So you start kind of taking in all that information. And rather than just following what the research says or what this one expert says, you kind of apply that to your body of own N equals one kind of research. And then you start kind of letting it maybe just move you and shift you in a slight direction. Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast. My guest today is somebody who has been on the podcast before and uh, is well-deserving of being on the podcast again. His name is Steve Hall, and he is very well-known as his company name, Revive Stronger. You may have listened to the Revive Stronger podcast or maybe even follow him on Instagram at Revive Stronger. But Steve is somebody who is... Uh, a very impressive coach and bodybuilder, as well as just a, a really good human being. He's just a great guy. He puts out a ton of amazing content. He's one of the hardest working natural bodybuilders I've ever met or seen in my entire life. Um, so just watching him is an inspiration and, and seeing his dedication to the sport, his dedication to the industry and putting out evidence-based content from a coaching perspective, gathering so many different research uh, reviewers, researchers themselves, evidence-based professionals, practitioners, coaches, educators, and, and really pulling them together to help him create better podcasts, better seminars, better content, better videos, and just more information for himself to then implement and deploy into the space. I mean, it's phenomenal. I'm a huge fan of Steve. I've been a huge fan. We've known each other for a long time now. We've podcasted together multiple times, and I just love everything he does. So I want to have him back on the podcast. Uh, he is somebody who has, uh, you know, and I don't think he would mind me saying this, but he has outworked bad genetics. I don't think he has terrible genetics, but I've heard him say multiple times, he definitely doesn't have the best genetics, but you wouldn't be able to tell because he has outworked those genetics. He has defied the odds. Uh, he went through a really brutal head injury years and years and years ago at 20 years old. And he found bodybuilding through that recovery process. And that's where Revive Stronger actually came from. He revived himself from that nasty situation, became a competitive bodybuilder, did so much in the sport and is continuing to do so much as well as coaching everyday individuals and bodybuilders himself. So really impressive guy. He is a wealth of knowledge. And uh, like me, his, he is a interpreter and implementer of the research in the evidence-based space. So I think you guys are going to like this. No, in fact, I know you guys are going to enjoy this show. So make sure you go check out his podcast, the Revive Stronger podcast. You can follow him on Instagram at Revive Stronger, all of which I'm going to link in the show notes. Uh, today, we're going to talk about the research on training volume, on deloads, on uh, different dieting methods that we would call one percenters and whether or not they're worth the time and effort to implement. We're going to talk about all this biomechanics stuff that is like perfecting your technique and line of force and all this like crazy nitty gritty things. Are they even worth your time and energy? We dive into a lot of what is really popular right now and what a lot of the research has been surrounded about with regards to dieting and training for body composition changes. So hypertrophy, fat loss, muscle growth, things like that. And we take a coaching lens to it. Let's look at the research and then let's really figure out what makes sense, what we should be implementing and what it actually means for the everyday individual. So I know for a fact you guys are really, really going to enjoy this podcast and get a ton out of it. Grab a pen, grab a pad, get ready to take notes. Without any further ado... I give you Steve Hall of Revive Stronger. 
All right, man. I'm excited to do this, obviously, because I think we've been kind of going back and forth for like 10 to 20 minutes already, uh, just kind of BSing on the different stuff you're doing. And and I, I really, uh, I'll just say this and, and just kind of toot your horn before I get into the the actual questions, but I just re- really respect everything you do, uh, the way you approach coaching, the way you approach content and bodybuilding. I feel like as coaches uh, and, you know, an athlete for yourself, I would call myself like a very, very recreational athlete and bodybuilder because I love bodybuilding. I love all that. And I'm finally just stepping back into the mix of it. But you do a really good job of interpreting and and implementing the research and documenting what you're doing and sharing content in a, uh, a coaching way over an influencer way. And I often say to people who I haven't met before, I haven't talked to, they'll ask me like, Oh, you're kind of like an influencer. Some you got a podcast and like a decent Instagram following. I'm like, yeah, I, I like that. I have influence on people, but I was a coach well before I was a social media person. And there's a lot of people who have like flip-flopped on that. And at times we have to create, uh, let's call it bait and switch content that gets, you know, it attracts people, but then it actually delivers value. But I've always looked at your content. It's like, you haven't wavered from always making sure that you're, you're, you're staying transparent and authentic to what you believe in, what the research says, and just being a coach, you know, and delivering good content. So I'm excited to have you on, man. You have a great podcast. We've had you on a couple of times. I think once for a round table and then once just on a one-on-one so I'll link those in the description for everybody listening. Um, but Steve Hall, man, I'm excited to have you on and have a conversation. Yeah, I'm excited to be here and like talk shop. And I appreciate all those words because you described how I like people to view me and view my content. And that matters a lot to me. I like how people interpret that. And I, I'm glad I don't want to be like, and I think I like the people view influencer as like a bit of a dirty word because that's not like I fine. I have influence on people, but I certainly don't view myself like you said. Like you're not an influencer. You are first and foremost like a coach, a businessman, an educator. I more so view myself as somewhat of an educator, but more and like you said, the the practical side of things. Like I'm a practitioner. I'm not a researcher. That's not my role. That's why I bring the researchers and the experts who are interpreting that and bring that to me. And then I think that's going to be part of the discussion. It's like well, now, what do practitioners like do with that, and how do we implement it? So no, I really appreciate the kind words like that. That means a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I know it sounds weird, but I know how it feels to have people tell you uh, that you are a certain way when you, it, it's a weird thing. Cause like you try to be that way, but you don't want to tell people you're trying to be that way. So when people yes. finally say that you're that way, you're like, yes, it's working. Like they get it. So I totally get that. Yeah. And you're in, you're in that position. You and I are similar in that sense, but like there's, I think there's a big gap between social media, the client, the, the listener, the, the person engaging and consuming and the actual researcher. A lot of times they don't even know where to find that. So for us to be in between and help bridge that gap is really important, you know? So it's, it's playing a massive role in the industry and in the fitness and nutrition space as a whole. So it's good, but, um, you hit the nail on the head, man. That's exactly what I want to talk about today. So the first thing I really wanted to ask you is kind of like how you implement all the latest research. And you don't necessarily have to go into any specific study here because we'll pick through a few. Um, you can if you want. But really, you know, when you see new research come out, um, whether it's you're just reading the paper, you're going to a research review, or you actually have the person on your podcast and you talk to them, are you the type that goes all in because you're like, I'm going to put this to the full test and really see if it applies to myself as well, a more advanced lifter? Because as we know, sometimes the research studies are on novices, which people hate on, but I think at the same time, it's probably good because then you can actually create a significant difference and they can 
see what happens versus if they did something on you, it would take a year, you know, like to really see yeah. a huge change. But are you the type that's more conservative with it? You're like, I'm going to implement a little bit, see what happens. Or do you feel like you go all in? Like, what are your limitations or like what limitations do you see? And just, just overall, like, how do you approach actually applying some of this stuff into your own training and nutrition? Yeah, it's a really good question. Cause, uh, I do think like research is exciting and like research papers can be exciting. And I, I do still read, I don't read all of them. I can't admit to that, but if I'm bringing on what I like to do, let's say it this way, when I see a new paper come out, I like to see maybe the uh, the kind of lead author of that paper has posted it, maybe some of their interpretations. I'll like read that, read what they're saying, and I'll also download the paper and look to read through it myself and just see if there's anything, I don't know, some take homes that I have from it. As you probably know, uh, with this sort of stuff, like some research you can read and you can digest, you can understand it. Like there was a recent one on like size of energy surplus that Eric Helms was on and they were sharing that and there was like a maintenance versus moderate versus large surplus. That was like, for me, easy to read. I could digest it. I could have my own take homes. That was just not that complex. But then you look at the meta-regression meta-analyses from um, Zach Robinson. It's like, this is pages and pages and pages of very in-depth stuff. And obviously it's looking into tons of different papers within that own paper. It's like, hey, this is I know this is out of my like scope. Like I'm not that skilled to be able to re like look at this and research it and uh, understand it and uh, interpret it properly. So in those sort of circumstances, I, I do like to bring then the person on to the podcast, even with the surplus one, like that would still be an interesting paper to, to discuss, but there's just not as many discussions to have around it. I think it was just more of a simple topic to, to have there and then do that um, and then have a back and forth and, from having read it myself, bring on my own questions that I have about it and how does that also reflect uh, something I like to do is think about in practice, like what have my own experiences been? How does this relate to that? Is it in line with that or is it complete opposite to what I would have expected to have seen? Why is that? Uh, and normally the kind of the author of the paper, like you said, is a practitioner, not practitioner necessarily, but they're a trainee themselves. So they've got their own experiences. So it's like, did you expect to see that? What was like your hypotheses? Was it like against your bias, pro your bias, kind of what happened there? Uh, so that's always nice to do. And then I do like to look at kind of what people are commenting on, even those posts and like, what is the rest of the industry doing? But normally what I like to do in those situations is rather than kind of bring on, I don't know, any sort of individual who's maybe like myself and just like read it and then has their own interpretations. I like to kind of put together what are other people saying about the paper and then ask the lead author that kind of, okay, someone's read your paper, they've said this, do you think that's like a fair kind of interpretation of the paper or do you have something else to say about it? And normally they have something else to say about it. It's kind of wild to me because particularly in the last few years, research has just become so available and that's great because like the person can just put it out there. The, the researcher themselves may have not even shared the post yet that they've kind of published it and it's kind of um, free to access and read. Someone else might have already seen like, I don't know, they have a notification come in their email. They've kind of, I don't know, read the abstract and they're already posting about it because they want to be there first and get all like the attention. And uh, I think the researchers are pretty frustrated about that from what I gather. Um, uh, so yeah, I think that's kind of where I go with that. And then in terms of kind of how I would like to implement it, I definitely add it to kind of my knowledge base as I've advanced within my coaching and within my own lifting career, I used to, and I think this is fine when you start, like you just follow like a cookie cutter program because you can't build a better program than this kind of experienced expert individual can for you. But once you've mm -hmm. been following a program for a while, you've got your own experience, you start to learn, hey, 
Like they're programming, I don't know, it's five sets here. It's like, I can't even recover from five sets. Let's do three. Or they've said to do a back squat. That doesn't do anything for my quads. And I really want to prioritize quads. I'm going to do a hack squat here. You start to learn your body, what suits you well. So you start kind of taking in all that information. And rather than just following what the research says or what this one expert says, you kind of apply that to your body of own N equals one kind of research. And then you start kind of letting it maybe just move you and shift you in a slight direction. So I never like to take one study at like just face value, especially because when it's one study, like you already have to add that to the body of literature. And if there isn't a body of literature, it's like it's one study. (laughs) You really can't say too much from it, especially training studies. They're normally like 12 weeks at most with a small subset of individuals, like you said, normally novice, like new trainees. So it's not always 100% applicable to everything we're doing. So I always just take my time and I'll, I'll let it kind of come into the kind of scene a little bit and almost let the early adopters, because there will be people like you said, who will just jump on it immediately. They're like, I'm trying all this out. I'm going 100% all in. Maybe it's like length and partials. They're just like change all their programming to length and partials, which is fair enough. Like I'm a little bit more risk averse than that. So I'm like, hey, <laughs> maybe I'll just like, I'll layer that into my programming rather than like jump on board. And then I'll see how they're responding to it. Maybe ask some of them, bring them on the podcast, ask them about it and uh, kind of learn that way too before like I'm not ready to go like full length and partial training for myself necessarily. I know someone like Milo Wolf has already done that, but I want to see more evidence to convince me of that because I've so long got benefits of full ROM training. So it's like, I don't want to go too far in that direction, but I will say as an example of length and partials, I have slowly been going more that direction that's kind of the approach I've always taken. I know when I first got into the industry, I was doing like strict clean eating. And then I found about like, if it fits your macros and I was like, that sounds no, like I can't possibly eat a Pop-Tart or something like this. Mm-hmm. And then slowly I was like, I re- read it and I'm like, you know what? This makes sense. Like what I'm doing doesn't make sense. And so I slowly will incorporate, oh, I have a, like, don't know, Mars bar in my post-workout. Oh, I'm still okay. Like, I'm not a, a fat fuck already. Like, I'm doing all right. <laughs> and then I'll gain that experience and confidence in it. And then I'll like, hey, I probably took it to one extreme at some point. I think a lot of people did with if it fits your macros. They're like trying to fit in just tubs of Ben and Jerry's at night or something. And then you bring it back to kind of a middle ground and you find what works best for you. So, yeah, that tends to be my kind of general philosophy as I'm going through it. How about you, Cody? What do you, what's your kind of thoughts? Similar. I think, uh, you, you said a few things that I agree with a lot and I think are good. Like, um, I tend to watch what, cause a lot of the, you know, the, especially with the researchers who are also research reviewers, they train a lot, you know? So I try to pay attention to what they're doing themselves. You know, let me see how they're training. Let me see if they've implemented anything. Cause they'll put out a study and then if they're not directly implementing a ton of it into their own training, I'm like, okay, it can't be that important where it needs to be everything. So that's, that's really important. I, I also, um, I agree with you in the sense of like sprinkling some of it in, like even with the length and partials for me, it was like, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Where can I implement some of this without completely changing my program? Right. So like on a dumbbell flat bench press on the very last set, maybe I'll go to failure with partials in the bottom range because it's safe. I can just drop the dumbbells. Nothing bad is going to happen. I can get a little bit out of that. It's not going to interfere with my performance on set one, two, or three. It'll just be on my fourth and final set. And, and you know, even some of it, I try to, and, and I'd be curious on your thoughts with this too. And, and this is, you know, I actually was listening to a, a recent interview you did with Scott Stevenson. And this is where it like popped up in my head. But I've always 
felt this way, even with uh, like preferentially eating a lower fat, higher carb diet when the goal is strictly fat loss in muscle growth or like muscle preservation during a prep or a fat loss phase. Just looking back in history, like what have bodybuilders always done? you know, when they didn't have research, you know, and so people can pick apart and be like, well, as long as it's protein and calories doesn't matter. And then we can get deeper and go, well, if you really look at how the body stores fat versus carbs and so on and so forth, we could say that the body's going to me and Brandon Roberts on my staff have had conversations about this where I like keep nudging and he, he's very like, well, the science doesn't show, you know, he's conservative. And I'm like the bro, like trying to get him to say something. And, uh, you, we could say that, you know, technically based on science, it's probably true too, but there's not enough evidence to support it. But there's no evidence on bodybuilders except anecdotal. So let's look at them, you know? And so even with like the length and partials, and, and this is why podcasts like this or the one that you do with Scott Stevenson and Eric Helms, all these people is great. And for people listening, once upon a time, I'm sure Steve did this too. We used to pay these kind of guys for consults and just pick their brains for an hour. And then I could find, I found out I could just do a podcast and I'm like, <laughs> oh, now I can just do it for free and it promotes you and, you know, I get <laughs> my fix too. But you guys were talking about traps and I used to always remember thinking kind of like, okay, like why, why is farmer's carry so great for traps? It crushes your grip. You, you're walking super fast. It's a great core exercise. I understand the functionality, but why does it make your traps so big? I don't feel a crazy contraction. I feel like shrugs would be way better. Face pulls would be way better. Why do these guys that deadlift and shrug have huge traps? Or why do uh, Olympic ring, you know, athletes, they have massive biceps. They don't do curls. Well, if you go to the bottom of a ring chin up and you're rotating in, you're lengthening the bicep as much as possible and your whole weight's pulling you down. On a farmer's carry, your shoulders are pulling your traps into a stretch position. It's one of the only exercises you do that outside of deadlift. And I'm like, huh, that makes sense. So like, for me, a lot of times I try to look back at kind of like historically speaking, bodybuilders, athletes, what has been things that just work and we haven't really had a reason. We just know like do this for big traps. Why? Because dudes with big traps do it. Just do it like old strength stuff, you know? So I don't know if you look back at like anecdotal stuff in history at all, but that's big for me. Yeah. Yeah. It's something I've had to, uh, I don't know, eat, not my ego with it, but just be like, hey, accept that in some way because i used to be a bit strict about this maybe similar to brandon where i'm like like uh the people will talk about success leaves cl leaves clues and they will be just they you can't follow ronnie common's training program and expect to look like ronnie common that's just silly uh like <laughs> there's like individual yeah. difference is massive like you have to look at it's just like you can't use a rat study to say this happens in humans you can't say like, again, that, that big bodybuilder can't say this, like, okay, novice trainee, that's not going to necessarily apply to me, but equally your results that Ronnie's getting with his program isn't necessarily going to relate to you. So like it's, I, I definitely think anecdote is evidence. Uh, it's definitely a weaker form of evidence. And then it's trying to like pick apart what's doing the thing. So I don't know, like bodybuilders traditionally like had like tilapia to thin the skin is one example I think of often. Yeah. I'm like, hey, it, it's a lean protein source, of course. Like this, just like that's probably what it was doing it for them. Like it's a low calorie lean Can't protein back source. That one up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's, but definitely it's when the thing I think about with the the length and partials as well that you brought about what were guys doing and what did I find myself constantly doing is finding an excuse to introduce momentum to help get it short because I'd be like, I'm failing in this short position, but I know I've got more in my like back to give but my back's weakest when it's short. It's hardest when it's short, when I'm doing a rowing movement. 
So let's use a bit of momentum to drive and like say that that's something that's acceptable because it's balancing out like the resistance and strength profiles. But like bodybuilders used to do that all the time. You look at like their bent over rows. Uh, Arnie was famous for like his cable rows where he would just like be swinging the weight around. He's not swinging it around necessarily. Like he's getting a huge stretch on his uh, lats and like upper back and whatever. And then he's like getting a peak contraction, but he's having to use drive and momentum to allow him to continue to get those reps. So I do think, I definitely think there's something to like success leaving clues and like your own like bodybuilding intuition as you go through things where if you just ignore, again, that's where I'm like, hey, let's not ignore what's happening in real time with me. Let's kind of, because I am my own case study and studies are great, but they're only averages. Like there's people at either end of the spectrum. Maybe some people aren't responding to that protocol. Maybe you're one of them, or maybe you would like respond completely differently to it. So you have to listen to your own feedback, which is where I think a lot of like, the old school bodybuilders just they just looked at what was happening to them in real time and was like ah this seems to be working let's double down on that like i think probably they were using things like refeeds and things in the past or maybe well i think like a shitload was a thing for a while like on peak week it's like it's not the it's the what was doing it wasn't like the food you're eating it was the fact you're having lots of sodium lots of like calories lots of carbohydrates lots of fluids when you're consuming that and then that led to like this look it's like hey maybe we can refine that and be like let's manage sodium fluids carbs into a peaking kind of protocol we can test it and then see how it goes similar to maybe with these kind of rows let's work just 50 percent of the range of motion let's cut out the short position or maybe you do full rom until you're fatigued and then you just finish off with partials or something i think we can use science to refine what we were doing in the past or correct it if it was wrong necessarily you know one thing i didn't even uh, something you said made me think about this even with studies looking at it like for volume studies, for example. Um, and I would be curious of your, um, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, this might kind of lead us right into that is I think you would call it biomechanics is like the, the, the term that a lot of them are using in general, which I don't know if fully explains what we're talking about, but really it's like this whole, it's, it's almost like a anatomy approach to bodybuilding where we're trying to line up the resistance curve and the force curve like perfectly. And we're slowing things down to create maximal tension. Technique is the most important thing, which in my mind can limit somebody's volume. It definitely can create inability to have any momentum to create a bigger stretch in some scenarios. But at the same time, if you're missing the target muscle, what are you really creating tension in? You know, mechanical tension is the most important thing. So I think there's a place for it, but I'm curious about your thoughts on it. But when I think of these volume studies, that's part of the thing that I'm thinking they're almost missing. Because if we do lat pull downs, for example, and we're trying to see how much volume can help uh, build and they use like a lat pull down, a bench press and a leg press or something. Well, depending on somebody's femur length and tibia length, their leg press is going to be quad or glute dominant. We don't know. So if it's more quad dominant, their their thigh mass is going to grow more. If it's glute dominant, their glutes are going to grow more. It's not going to be in the measurement. If the bilateral lap pull down sucks for that person because of their levers, they probably need a single arm, but they're not changing those things. And like, I'm sure it would probably make a huge difference if they did some measurements to see what movement pattern or what exercise selection is going to be more favorable for the person to do the study and then introduce volume. I don't know what that would take money and time-wise, so I can't act like I, they should do that. I'm not going to speak for researchers because I know it's more difficult than we think, but just in general, like what are your thoughts on that side taking uh, a level of importance that's similar to volume, I guess, like how, how much, you know, importance do you place on that stuff? Because 
in some case, I think for a long time I was like, it's not that big of a deal. Just train hard and lift and do enough. But then at a certain point, I think as you get more advanced, you can't just keep doing more. You're going to burn out. So you almost have to be hyper-focused, you know? So I guess I'm just curious where, where you stand with this, uh, this whole idea of technique over volume, I guess would be the question. Yeah, it's a really good question uh, because this, I don't know if this answers your question, but it relates to something that I'd been thinking about for a while. And I made a, a vlog on it not that long ago and it's, it was on our member site and I released it just recently on our YouTube. Uh, I wish I had it top of mind because I was basically talking about this thing where a lot of people talk about intensity or like volume as the main drivers for hypertrophy. And obviously, I think we all know they're both kind of complementary. Like you, you can't have one without the other. You're going to have, you could have maximal intensity and you're not going to grow. Same with you could have maximal volume and you're going to be a long distance runner and you're not growing because you've got no intensity or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. So, and then I think there's also that element of exercise, like selection comes in there and also probably technique in combination with that. And I think those three kind of come in to provide what is overall like a stimulus that you're trying to generate for a muscle. So I have moved away from necessarily thinking about, and I like the volume landmarks that Mike Isretel popularized with like minimum effective volume, maximum adaptive volume, maximum recoverable volume. But there's quite quickly errors that come into that. And same with the like scientific recommendation of, I think the latest systematic review was saying 12 to 20 sets, but it's like, 12 to 20 sets of what? <laughs> like if we're doing yeah. 12 sets of leg extensions at a four RAR, like are we maximally growing our quads? I highly doubt it. But if you're doing 12 sets of like failure training or 20 sets of failure training, like back squats, you're probably completely wrecked and you're not able to do anything else. And then like you said, maybe even back squats aren't the good growth tool for you. Like maybe you're better off in a hack squat and then probably better off combining that with some sort of leg extension and then it's like, now how are you like using the volume recommendations to kind of guide that decision-making process? Like now you have to say maybe like 60, 70% of your training comes from compound lifts. Now like 30, 20% comes from isolation-based lifts, but that's like an arbitrary recommendation based off just anecdotal experience and what coaches might think about. So I tend to think about stimulus and trying to generate that for a trainee. It's like, hey, and I do like to use some of the short-term proxies for these because I just find them so valuable. Like what is actually getting your pump, uh, sorry, getting your quads, if we're to take that example, what's getting them a pump? What's getting them to feel like locally fatigued and disrupted? Like, hey, you've just got off the leg press. Are you struggling to walk, walk on your quads or your glutes? Like that example. Uh, the next day, what's sore for you, if anything at all? And how are you feeling you're dealing with that level of um, stimulus? Are you feeling like you could take on more? Are you feeling like, hey, no, I'm only just recovering between sessions. Like I can't deal with any more. That's kind of where I tend to view things where I'm like, hey, I'm trying to auto-regulate to generate like a medium to high sort of local fatigue pump and I'm recovering on time between sessions and do as much of that at a high enough quality of that as much as possible and picking and choosing exercises that's going to allow me to do that. And I think that's just come from coaching experience where you're like, hey, I... You, one person might be able to do this many sets of whatever their program is, but it doesn't apply to this other person in this different scenario. Kind of similar to someone might ask me my macros and be like, hey, I'm the same body weight, the same age, the same height, the same steps as you. Like, what are your macros? They should like clearly apply to me. And it's like, no, 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 they could be very different because we're differently. <laughs> like our genetics are different. Just like you said, someone is, uh, their le levers can be built different. So certain exercises just don't suit them well. So I think when you view any one of those in isolation, it ends up just missing everything. And I think the combination of them all come in to just talk about like a generating a stimulus for growth. 
And so long as you're kind of in that good range, like you're going to be doing good stuff. I don't know if that so makes sense. You, <laughs> it does. Um, I guess my follow-up question would be, do you uh, implement a heavy focus on this aspect of, I'm just going to say Casim. I don't want to like throw him under the bus because I don't like disagree with what he's saying by any means. But when I think of a lot of this stuff, I think of Casim. I think of N1. I think he popularized a lot of it. And my only hesitation with any of it has been the reputability of those, I mean, dare I say, really jacked guys who use this kind of stuff. Like, I feel like they were already jacked. So I'm, I, I'm like, it, it's, I, I tell people this a lot with, uh, there's a lot of like older strength coaches who say low volume is actually better. It's easier to recover from. You should do low volume. And I'm like, yeah, but is that also because like, if you look at volume, like a bell curve, you know, in the beginning, anything works and then you get intermediate, you got to do more volume. And then eventually you get so strong and you can create such a hard stimulus that you can't just do unlimited volume. You're going to bang yourself up. So it lowers off. So if you're telling a new guy that he needs low volume, that's probably not helpful, you know? But I guess like what importance do you still place on that? Do you only place it on like, if you're like, I personally struggle to build my lats and it's because I'm not connecting with it well, like it fatigues easily. I got to like really hone in on this before I crank up volume. If I'm easily connecting to a muscle, I don't worry about that. I just want to like bang on, let's just crush some weights and do volume. Like is, is that kind of your style? Yeah, it's a great question uh, because this actually relates a little bit to how I've like approached some of the research coming in and then like seeing what other people are doing, how they're interpreting it, people I respect, and then just like assessing it myself. Does it make sense to me as a like logical rationale for it? And then maybe trying a little bit here and there and uh, doing that sort of thing. So it's funny you mentioned Kasim because when he first came into the scene, I found his content very jarring where it was like, this is tick lats. This is X, um, like uh, upper back for like a lat pull right. down. I'm like, man, I've been doing like a straight bar lat pull down for my life, like for my lats. And I, they're not terribly yeah. developed. And I, I don't know if that directly came from him. So I don't want to say that it was directly his work, but I think that kind of biomechanics field, it kind of came from that area. And I don't know if he generated uh, some content like that and then people took it too far. And I think that that's died off this kind of tick and cross of like, this yeah. does this, this doesn't train this at all. And it's like, hey, now people are talking about biasing muscles. That's more what I can get on board with because I'm like, hey, you can't say this iliac lat pull down is specifically only training your iliac lat. Like that's just, you can't, we can't uh, isolate muscles yeah. to that degree. It's even when you're doing like a bicep curl, it's not just your bicep that's literally doing the entire movement. You, you can't isolate to that extent. We can do it more or less. So yeah, I found it very jarring. So it took me a while to... And I, I saw he was popular though. And lots of people were using these things and they were sticking around. And I was like, hey, uh, like, um, was things come and go, like phases and crazes and you see it all the time, what's in vogue. But some of these th things that he was implementing were sticking around for a good amount of time. There's people I respected who were implementing them, learning from him. And I so wanted to keep him in my like view, because I didn't want to be that ignorant individual who is dogmatic to her own kind of thought processes and what they do. So it took me a while. And then I just, it was kind of similar to my experience with if, if it's your macros or flexible dieting, where I was like, Hey, this is against what I've been doing and what's been working, but let me just try it. Cause actually I think there's some sense to it. It's like you said, like trying to match things with a line of pool. We're talking about origin and insertion, trying to get a muscle as long and then as short as possible. What kind of works well for those muscles and 
thinking about the lats and kind of their function and that all makes sense like you said kind of training a bit like what's the anatomy what's the function of a muscle that's really what we're trying to do with every exercise like a back squat if that trains your quads well there's like a biomechanic rationale to an explanation to why that trains your quads well or not uh, depending on the individual so i brought him on the podcast we talked about things and i understood his perspective better and i think he also has done a much better job of sharing his kind of understanding of things where it was more talking about biasing exercises and it was a little bit less black and white more shades of gray and he also didn't say like hey like people less trash on exercises right like i don't know this lat prayer just it's terrible for the lats you shouldn't be doing it's like hey i I think the lat prayer is maybe not as effective as this, but you can still use that and grow your lats just fine type of thing. And I think that's much more where I come from, where I don't like to throw out tools in the toolbox. So after doing that and also trying some of his exercises, because for me, uh, we're talking off air about my kind of prowess as a bodybuilder and I have structural issues where my essential symmetry isn't that great. I don't have an amazing X frame. I needed to grow my lats specifically. So they hopefully show a little bit more on that front relaxed and so I did start implementing some of the like direct lat work that had become very popular, like the iliac lat pull down, because to me, I just looked at what he was saying and I tried to implement it. And I was like, it makes sense. I'm getting that kind of quality biofeedback that I want in the gym. And it's, I'm not doing the application of it needs to be like slow, controlled, perfect. I'm still training hard. I think that's where people often go wrong is they like take this one concept and like, okay, it has to be this perfect angle at this certain degree. And if I'm not just like perfectly, the liner pulls off slightly, I've completely screwed up. I'm like, if you're like moving weight around in like a stable position and you're getting close to failure, like something growing, <laughs> like as long as you're not completely off, like you're going to be doing a pretty damn good job. And so when I started to focus on that, I was like, hey, now I, I kind of get where they're coming from. They're trying to just more so bias and be a little bit more specific with some, with some movements. Uh, but I definitely was... It took me a while to get there and accept it. And I, I'm glad I did, but I think I was a little bit closed-minded to it in the, in the past. But I do think some of it can be taken too far. It's like you mentioned, like people have been growing very, very well without it for a long period of time. But I also don't like the saying, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Because I'm like, hey, it could be like working, but not as well as it could be. And so maybe we can do uh, more about it. But truly, it's also like you said, Something could be working for someone now, but that might doesn't mean it would have worked for them in the start. Look at where they came from. If you're looking to like grow like Ronnie Coleman, look like what did he do when he was natty and small? Not now yeah. he's like enhanced and huge. That's probably going to be more informative to you. So looking at, I don't know, the biggest CEO with billionaire, don't look at what he's doing now to grow the business. Look at how he kind of traveled to get there in the first place. And I think that's sometimes where people go a bit wrong. That's really good. I think that's actually really, really important. I even, it kind of relates to the, what we were saying earlier of like looking at research and then kind of putting or like vetting it with what have bodybuilders done in the past? Is there anything that they have done that justifies this study or works against it? And if it does work against it, is there rationale as to why it does or does not? Cause you know, um, and rest in peace, uh, mountain dog, John Meadows, he was kind of known for a lot of that, right? Like even the stretch stuff. I remember his, yeah. I, I remember him talking about like, uh, he, I think he called it, uh, it was either super pump or ultra pump. Like he called it something like that. Whereas like Mike Isretel would call it metabolite training, right? Metabolic fatigue and just accumulating metabolites in the muscle, getting a pump. But he would go through phases in his training sessions, which I loved. And one of them was like the stretch phase. Like he had a movement in every session that was based on the stretch and the stretch was really important. And there wasn't a lot of research to justify it yet. 
later on we find out that it, you know, it comes out. Um, and, uh, even like if we look at some bodybuilders who do like, they never lock out on the bench press and we're like, ah, oh, they're not doing a full ROM. Yeah. But they're consistently doing the most important for them. Now, if they go to the leg press and they're doing like little quarter squats or quarter, now it's the opposite. It's not working. Right. Why? Because they're in the short. so like some of the stuff starts to make sense when you start putting those factors in. But no, I think you said that really well, especially for anybody listening who uh, might be confused by it. And if your form for lack of a better term sucks with something, if you're not connected to a muscle, maybe this stuff is really important for that target muscle group. Maybe you should use some of it. And I like that you humbly dug deeper because even for myself, it was the, it was the same exercise. It almost like triggered me at first. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, that's a great exercise. Don't say that. Like I always do that. And then that's my ego and pride. And then I have to go, okay, well, let me investigate more. Let me listen to him talk. Let me dive deeper. I'm really good friends with Austin current and he's really well versed awesome. in all this too. So like, I like texted him and I'm like, what is this all? Like, talk to me, bro. Like, cause as a coach, we should be able to put our biases aside, you know, and, and look deeper into this stuff. So th- this kind of, some of the stuff you said, I think is really good. Uh, and it makes me want to talk about the deload stuff real quick, which I wasn't planning on because this will be a teaser for anybody listening. Cause we have uh, max who did the study coming on soon in a couple of weeks. Uh, but when you were talking about, you know, your, it was almost like you had like a checklist, you know, um, am I, you know, is the muscle feeling fatigued? Um, you know, in, so like, that would mean it's not like joint fatigue. There's not like it's localized fatigue. It's not fatigue elsewhere. Like I wasn't even targeting that muscle. Like, you know where you're fatigued, you know where you're targeting, you feel the pump, you're, you're progressing properly. You have like a checklist. So let me implement this and then make sure I abide by the checklist. When doing those things, I feel like a deload is inevitable. If you're doing all these things right, it seems like a deload was inevitable. So when the study came out, I was kind of shocked to hear like deload suck. It's not important. And I've often said, there's a lot of people that that's true for, and I've been saying this, but it's because there's a lot of people listening to our podcast that train three days a week, four days a week, maybe. Um, it's not, you know, the majority of the listeners train four or five days a week, probably. But there's sometimes where you're just not training hard enough to need deloads, and it's not because you don't train hard or good or smart. It's just because you're not doing enough week to week to really need it. And I'm curious if you still have that thought process. Do you still use deloads? Like, what is your conclusion after hearing him out? actually having a conversation with him, do you think deloads are pointless or like maybe you just don't need a full week? Like what is your consensus on it? Yeah, it's great. This is a good example because I don't, I think it might've been Menno and Menno's uh, good or bad for this, depending on your perspective. He has uh, clickbait titles, right? Uh, He said, I think he had something like deloads were a waste of time. Like they led to worse results, something like this, you know? Um, I don't think it was quite that. And I don't, I I love Menno. I think he's great. And uh, he does good clickbait content sometimes, Mm -hmm. but I think, there's then individuals who just read that or they just read the abstract and they're like, oh, a deload didn't lead to better results. It's like, hey, like, let's dig deeper into this. It's similar to me. It was a really good like comparison was like the diet break studies that came out. It's like, oh, the diet breaks didn't help at, like uh, with fat loss and results. It just slowed things down. And that's essentially kind of what people were alluding to with the deload. It's like, hey, if, if there's no reason to use the tool, why would you think there's going to be benefits to using the tool? Like, People weren't dieting long enough, hard enough to need a diet break in the first place. They were feeling fine. They could have kept going. Same with this with when you dug into the deload study, like the individuals that took it after, I think it was four weeks they took it. Like they didn't feel like they needed a deload. They felt completely fine, well rested. They were kind of, it seemed like they even were kind of almost agitated by taking the deload. Like it was like, hey, I've got good momentum here. I'm good to keep going. So it really highlighted to me, like, 
don't use a tool when it's not required. And this brings me back to actually kind of like a bit of a fundamental discussion around what we've been having here is like what's happening to you in real time. Because I know I ran programs when I didn't know any better. Like I run 531 and there's a deload within that. I don't know if I actually followed the deload. I probably didn't because I was like, man, I just, I'm super weak and I'm not beat up. Like I don't need a deload. But that's when I was first introduced to it. But for the longest time, I would have clients like, hey, you know, like after the end of this program, because I was a lot of the, the programming I initially did was based off um, like practical programming with Mark Ripito and Kilgore yeah. was one of them. And a lot of the textbooks were like strength-based programs. There wasn't really like hypertrophy principles that were available to us at that time. And they had like deloads at the end or it was like a transition week into another program. So then I would just follow them. But I can't remember when it was. It was great because before bringing Max on, I went back to one of the first roundtables I ever ran on the podcast, which was with Menno, Eric, and Mike. And we talked about deloads, uh, and that was the roundtable. I can't remember what year it was, maybe like 2018 or 2019, something like this. So years ago. And the conclusion to that was like, hey, you can have a like pre-planned deload, but auto-regulate it based off how you're doing. And after the chat with uh, Max, that's exactly where like it just confirmed how I'd already been doing things. Like, hey, I often have an idea of we're going to normally you need an accumulation of five weeks, sixth week you deload. Most of my clients land into a five to one paradigm, but sometimes they need a deload a week early. Sometimes it's two more weeks, like maybe they had a weekend where they couldn't get their training in and then it just alleviated some fatigue and they could keep going. Maybe they're post diet and now their kind of recoverability is really enhanced because they're into a surplus. So now they're just window of kind of recoverability is increased. They can go for more weeks. So it just made me really double down on questioning myself, like question my clients, don't just let them go into a deload because they're like, hey, yeah, next week's a deload, right, Steve? And they just like enjoy this easy week of training. It's like, actually, do you need that deload? Have you earned it? Have you got these red flags of like, hey, maybe there's some joint connective tissue fatigue, your motivation to train's dropping off, your performance is maybe plateaued or even drops in performance on some lifts where fatigue is masking that um, fitness characteristic, which is leading to a performance reduction. Like, are those things actually there? Or are you just taking a deload because it's in the program? Same with the like a, a refeed or a diet break. Like if you're going to use those tools, do it because you actually have like need it, not just because, hey, people say you should refeed once a week during a contest prep. Like maybe, maybe you don't need to use that tool right now or maybe you do and it is the right tool to use. So it just made me, it reconfirmed my thoughts surrounding deloads and something I have done a little bit more of is I used to think, that there was definitely something to a resensitization effect. I have become increasingly skeptical whether or not that's true. Mm. And so I used to be like, hey, I feel great after four days of deloading, but maybe three days I'll get a bit more resensitization. Like I'll just grow better, better out the other side. I'm not super confident in that. So sometimes where it's practical for me and makes sense, I will just like jump back into a training rather than take seven days. I'll do it after like, I'll take a five day deload. Like if there's any way I can get back to hard training sooner rather than later, I, I like to do it. Like uh, certainly when I go into the deload, I'm like, man, I need that. But after a few days, quite often I feel actually good to go again before seven days. So I have been experimenting with that a little bit. I actually ran an experiment and did like a two day deload after one of my mesocycles and yeah, that bought me like two or three weeks at most of hard training and I was completely destroyed for like two weeks. <laughs> so yeah, that's kind of been my experience uh, experience with it. And uh, yeah, it just kind of reconfirmed and maybe double down on making sure that, hey, I'm using a tool when it's appropriate, not just because like that tends to happen and that's like what most coaches do. Yeah. 
I think that's good. I think it's easy to, to, if you have a system of how you deload your client's programming, it's just, you know, if you're just, let's say dropping volume or dropping the intensity by RIR or a combination of both, when it comes up and it's needed, whether it's Tuesday now and they already started yesterday, but you realize fatigue's so high and, and you're late to it or whatever, you just make the adjustment and hey, spend the rest of the week doing this or take the week off or do whatever. I tend to think diet breaks at times can be more likely to be proactive only if you start to really learn the client. Cause we all know those people and, and sometimes they're us who are like, I'm fine. I can go, I can push. And then all of a sudden you can't. And it's like, okay, if I recognize a pattern in a client, I'm gonna be like, yeah, I know you're okay. But history has shown that after this many weeks of, of, you know, aggressive dieting and we're, we're ahead of schedule, we're going to take a diet break. Just, just, you know, just trust me. But I think that way of, of deloading is really smart. I also, and, and I don't know if you've, you've felt this, but it seems like the more and more that research progresses, the more and more periodization around deloads or even progression models like linear versus block versus anything, it kind of just is not black and white anymore. It's way more flexible. It's way more just like, you know what, if you're just training hard and you see that you're progressing, you just keep going. Like, it's almost like they're like, you have to change exercises this often. Then you find out, actually, no, you don't. You just keep going until you can't progress or you're bored, then change it. You have to do linear progression. Actually, no, you don't. It doesn't matter. Like, have you noticed that? And do you not really periodize your training? Um, I, I heard Mark Zordos, Mike Zordos say, uh, like, it, it, you should think about programming, not periodization when it comes to, to hypertrophy at times. And I think that's a really good way of putting it. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, like really periodization for hypertrophy, I view it as like a stimulus to fatigue trade-off, like you're managing stimulus and you're managing fatigue. So that's like mm. things like deloads, rest days, like like you said, you change an exercise once it's stale, like things like this uh, versus like you're trying to go through like an accumulation phase and like an intensification phase and things like this. Um, so I, I really just make changes that are auto-regulated in like, hey, this exercise just is, I don't know, it's plateaued or it's not feeling great. Let's rotate in a new one. But it's not, it's never like proactive in that sense. But I do agree with you with diet breaks that those proactively can actually be like, they can set you up really nicely. And in my experience too, uh, like again, if you're like dieting for contest prep or something, if you can have the time to be able to use those, those have been really great. But that's also something that I adjusted my perspective on as well, where I was like, I always would take like a seven day diet break every deload but i'm like hey maybe at the start of a diet you just take two or three days at the end of that deload and then as you get deeper and more diet fatigued you increase the number of days that you take at maintenance and then like you're taking every week towards the end of a diet um so yeah it's and i agree with you in terms of like programming and periodization for hypertrophy like the rep range like that you can use so long as you train hard like you can almost use any rep range as long yeah. as you're training a muscle uh, and you can use any exercise it's such a forgiving thing that you can do and so it just gives you so much freedom as a, a trainee or a, a coach to be able to program for someone like hey there's there's even training frequencies like anything from like two plus just seems to provide like very similar results like the, the research isn't like strict on anything really um like it's nice in that way Maybe yeah. too much freedom for some people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's almost like, but that's why, uh, not to, you know, put us up on a pedestal, but it's important for for young coaches or even clients or potential, like, you know, people looking to be educated to listen to people like us. Because like, I even remember when the Matador study came out and it was like, aha, this is what you have to do with diet breaks. This is just how it works. This is optimal. 
and you just learn more and more over time that like that's not the way it's going to work for everybody you know everybody is different everybody's gonna respond different like people start to assume diet break if i take a diet break i'm gonna adhere better it's like okay are you because you're different like maybe actually and there's some research through this you'd adhere better if you didn't and you just pushed it harder and you that momentum is actually what fueled your motivation and a diet break would throw you off or you need it less often or whatever it may be so it's important to think of like oh the matador used maintenance periods to increase like diet improve diet fatigue and increase adherence let's use it in any one way or another to just accomplish that goal not necessarily do it this specific way i think the failure topic is like that too and i'd love your thoughts on that because i think that you know i've had quite a few people on the podcast that have had different opinions i've had the uh, science educators and researchers. I mean, we've had Eric Helms and, and, um, and Mike Isertel, Menno, all these people. And a lot of them are more along the lines of, you know, as long as you leave one to three in the tank, you're probably going to be fine and you're going to manage to get better. And then I've had other people that, you know, even Brad Schoenfeld, he was on and he said that he prefers to take the last set to failure. So it's like, you know, yeah, keep a couple in the tank, but on your last set of every exercise, just take to failure. You might as well, as long as it's not going to negatively impact the next exercise, you should. And then we have the people who are just basically taking everything to failure. There's the people that say the research studies on it are bogus because those people don't actually know how to train failure. And then there's people who say the research is spot on because they do, but people in the real world don't. We all have our own opinions, obviously. Um, where do you land with all this? Like, I, I guess in twofold ways, like for you personally, and then for your clients. Yeah, this is... Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a subject that's obviously been on my podcast so much. Uh, like uh, an episode that went down really well was Jordan Peters. If you know Jordan Peters, JP, yeah. trained by JP over in the UK. Mm-hmm. And like he is like the law over here. Like most people yeah. here, I think, who are bodybuilders follow what he does to the T. They love Dorian Yates. And this is all like low say, volume, like Dorian Yates high intensity. Stage, right? Yeah, exactly. And um, then people will say just like crazy shit like, no, I mean, it's not the craziest shit, but let's say like every top IFBB pro always trains everything to failure. They're all low volume, all failure all the time. And I was quite literally listening to uh, a podcast on modern wisdom with, uh, why have I forgotten his name? Uh, the Gift. Why have I forgotten actually Phil what his Heath. name is? Phil Heath. There we go. Yeah. Phil He's Heath. from and- uh, the same city as I am. Oh, awesome. And yeah, yeah he, he was just saying about his training and it was like, totally different to what anyone would say like a top IFBB pro style trainer and I guess his style of training just never was like popular people didn't like it or there's someone like Jay Cutler often comes up as someone who apparently is quoted never training anything to failure so it's like people just get ideas in their mind it's similar to like saying hey researchers just don't know how to train to failure and it's like what's that based off like if you've been in the research lab watching them train people to failure because when I've spoken to those researchers they're like this shit's tough training. Like we're shouting at them to do repetitions. Uh, so I think, um, oh, why have I forgotten his name as well? Uh, from JPS, I just had him on recently and we we're talking about his research study where he was comparing like a two RER to failure on the leg press. And he had some video footage of his clients training to failure and training to two RER. And like, it's <laughs> like, he's like really having a go at them they've got intent they've got aggression like it's it's hard training so yeah it's it's just annoying there's so much like just noise and it's like you want to distill it down to what's actually actually happening and that's why i think research is better because like it's actually distilled information where they've put it into a lab and they've kind of taken people through a certain protocol so i do think that's kind of generally more useful than anecdote because you can essentially say hey look at dorian he always did this he grew really well but then you can always bring up a 
another example of someone else who was completely like a different approach to them. And that's probably because many roads lead to Rome. Uh, maybe you can find a slightly more optimal road for yourself, but that's a journey of self-discovery, I think. So yeah, it's, it's definitely an interesting discussion. I don't know if we we'll ever find like a completely like credited, like official answer for everyone. You should train a certain way. I think it's very clear that if you had like one session to grow as much muscle as possible, you train to failure. But then it comes about the fatigue cost of that, which I think everyone has experienced the increased fatigue from training to failure. And it's definitely more apparent on some lifts versus others, like a hack squat or a leg press to all out failure or, or a back squat. <laughs> it's not even safe to do so really like to train to momentary muscular failure where you just like have to rack it. Like that's not a particularly safe thing to do. But if you do that on like a lateral raise, if you do it on a calf raise, like it's not that fatiguing. So I do think there is not just like a, like everything, there's like a middle ground and there's ways of using it that can be kind of quote unquote optimal for different people. And I've, I've landed across just an approach that's worked so well for me for the last years, myself and clients. And that is generally starting out of a deload, starting a bit further away from failure, and then looking to progress that across the weeks. I used to be very much like a three, four RAR guy on everything from week one. But since talking to educators in the field and learning about, hey, maybe there is like a better SFR trade-off of going closer to failure on maybe an isolation lift like your calves. I've moved that a bit closer to failure and particularly on the isolation base lifts that are higher reps where people aren't as good at going to failure as well because it's uncomfortable and isolation base lifts where again, the fatigue cost is way lower. And also if someone has a really high volume tolerance for something and I'm just like, for me, for example, like abs, calves, like they can take a lot of volume. I'm just going way closer to failure so I don't have to pull on that volume lever as much. But for something like my quads, I can hit a three RER leg press, two sets, and I'm blown up. Like, especially in week one, I don't, I don't think the SFR is as good if I train to failure because then I'd just be sore for like four or five days. I wouldn't be able to train my quads again. My volume would be sacrificed so much. So I'm just kind of trying to find that kind of optimum balance between the two. And given that meta regression that came out, it has nudged me a little bit closer to training closer to failure. Um, at the start of blocks. But I do think even that dynamic of stimulus to fatigue trade-off can change week to week as someone's adapting to the stimulus they're provided. I kind of am maybe contradicting myself here because coming out of a deload, like it's not as hard to get a stimulus and it's way easier to get sore and beat it up. So that's why I like to start a bit further away from failure there and give yourself runway. And the way that could be hypocritical is because maybe that's a resensitization effect <laughs> and maybe there's something there, but um, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm open-minded to it. I'm just, yeah, still skeptical of that. I don't know if that answered the question, but that's when my mind yeah. is kind of morphed. I think it, it, it complements the last question about periodization too. I think that if there's any good way to periodize training for hypertrophy, it's probably similar to what you said progressing your effort and your RIR and, and training closer to failure and for lack of better terms, going harder as the weeks go on and then taking a deload and then starting fresh, not going too hard because you're going to probably create a lot of damage right out the gates because you've taken a deload week and then you slowly ramp it up, do it again. No, I think you answered that beautifully. And even if we, I, I think Jay Cutler's probably a little bit younger than Ronnie Coleman, but sometimes I even go like, cause I approach it the same way. Like my compound lifts, the big, the bigger lifts that are going to have more systemic fatigue, global fatigue, I'm probably going to leave a couple in the tank intentionally. And then I don't shy away from taking certain things to failure because it's an isolation exercise that I'm probably not even going to feel the next day nearly as much as I would the other one. Yeah. Um, but like 
Ronnie is on crutches half the time, you know, like I remember seeing him at the Olympia cause I went years ago and I ran into him at IHOP and it was like, Whoa, like you're frail now. Right. And like he went hard and he was taking big lifts, like deadlifts and stuff like that to failure all the time. Whereas you, I didn't know this about Jay and I follow him a decent amount. I listen to his podcast sometimes, but he didn't take anything to failure as you said, or, or at least he was more conservative with it. He seems really healthy. He seems like a very healthy guy like today. Yeah. Phil Heath is too, but Phil Heath's also way younger than Ronnie, but it'll be interesting to see that pan out over the years. Um, I know Branch Warren was one of those guys that would go balls to the wall too. I don't know what happened to him. I haven't seen anything from Branch Warren, Warren in a long time. Um, I don't know if he's still around doing stuff in the industry or not, but point being, as I think if we think about the long term, you know, that's the hard part is like, you know, Jordan Peters, I don't know enough about him, but where is he going to be in 20 years versus the guy who is leaving a few reps in the tank? Like, you know, it's, it's hard to say. So I think that's answered really well. I have a couple more questions for you. Then I'm gonna let you go, man. I think uh, the, the first one is this, you know, as we're talking about a lot of this stuff, some of it may be uh, the minor details. You know, I often call it like stacking the 1%. What I mean by that is, you know, like, uh, I think I was watching just recently you did, uh, I think it was a round table. It was Eric Helms, Mike Gersatel and somebody else. And I think it was about training to failure and I can't remember Zach, the guy's name. Yeah. Zach. So he's the one that does the research on this. So, and I'm just using this example cause I think you were wearing blue light blocker glasses, right? That would be like a 1% thing to me. Somebody says like, Oh, does that like change your results tremendously? No. Is it helpful? Yes. Otherwise I wouldn't wear them. Right. So like, it, but it's like a 1%, but you know, maybe creatine's is 1%, maybe taking your fish oil is 1%, maybe uh, like this, like way of phasing your RIR, is it backed by a ton of research? No, but do you think it works? Yes. It's probably a 1% difference, you know? And if you're more motivated by following a system, it's going to push you harder. Maybe it's, maybe it's 5%, but all these like one to 5%, if you stack them up, that might be a 25% difference in your progress. Some people look at those, like, don't worry about the little things, just focus on the big basics. But at certain point in my mind, it's like, once you've mastered the basics, you probably should emphasize some of these one percenters. My question to you is, is, are those worth the effort? Like outside of being just a, a geek like you and I are, where we just invest time and effort and money into this stuff. Do you think those things do pay off for even our clients who maybe aren't as invested in this stuff as us, as far as getting their goal a little bit faster? Yeah, I think this is a great question. And it's something that I think is really interesting because I actually made a, a thread the other day where I was something along the lines of the longer I do this, the more I see like extremely nuanced ways to get better results, the more I'm like, fuck that shit. It's just like mm-hmm. not worth the time and stress and effort involved. And I stand by that whilst still wearing my blue light blockers and doing <laughs> periodization with RER and taking like extreme care of my technique and various things like this that maybe and taking my creatine fish oils like I, I do all of those things and i think it's the the real crux of it is is literally what you said is it worth the stress or slash cost to you so like if someone hasn't got much money and they can't afford blue light blockers like it's it's not a game changer don't worry about if you need to spend that money on food to get your protein way more important like that's actually something that's going to yeah. clearly improve your results so I, I tend to look at these like one percenters of as if they are if the stress or the cost generated from it is going to generate more stress than the benefit of it in its first place, or it's going to take you away from the big rocks that you could put more effort into, then don't do it. So I have actually a personal example of this with like because this is the way I'm like just this this is the way I am. Uh, so like traps, um, what's it called? Forearms. These are things I used to isolate. But um, 
and I used to train AM and PM. So I used to split my training into morning and evening sessions, which I did for years. But I haven't done that since the last like two years, two, three years now, um, because I just found it the stress involved wasn't worth the benefit I was getting from it. And same with like, I was just training my car, sorry, my forearms and my traps because I was like, hey, why wouldn't I? They're muscles that I want to get bigger. It's like, do I need bigger traps or forearms? They're both pretty well built. So it's not like something I particularly need. And it was just adding to my session length. Everyone knows when your session starts just getting longer and volume, everything has a cost. And I like to think, oh yeah, my trap work, my forearm work, like it's not fatiguing, like it's not going to take away from anything. But it does. So does going in the morning and going in the evening. It, it does take away something from your focus in any one, like one setting. So just by consolidating my training a little bit, so training once a day, kind of taking apart the fluff and focusing on the things that really needed to grow on my physique, like that just improved my results completely. So I do think there's this careful balance of, yes, the 1% absolutely add up. If you've got a bit of cash lying around, you can put on some blue light blockers, like, I don't know, they cost 20 to 50 pounds or something or dollars it's a one-off investment you can use them for the rest of your life and you can just chuck them on in the evening there's like the costs are so small and there's only upside there sure if you like don't know don't stress about wearing them out in the evening (laughs) if you're going out for a party or something maybe you don't wear them at those occasions because just people questioning you about it might be not worth the the kind of stress of that but um like in most scenarios that's fine so i think it's it's a Everyone has to make this own kind of cost-benefit decision-making process for themselves. And sometimes you have to get burnt and go down the kind of end like I did, where you're just like, I'm going to do every 1% there is possible. But if you start seeing that detracts from the big rocks and foundations of what's driving progress, you might find your results are actually worse by investing in things that you think should be making things better. Does that make sense? Do you have Do you have any examples where you've done that, where you're like, I invested in this thing, but it actually didn't really help that much? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Uh, I can't think of anything off the top of my head with that. I, I can think of a, a closer situation more recently that um, I think it would apply. I, I just last weekend I was uh, I flew out to Dallas for an event, and uh, I was I'm six weeks out right now. So I brought meals with me, and so people asked about it, and I was like, I shared some of the stuff I got. Like I got these thermos things that I could bring on the plane because it's like a five hour flight, and the flight was super early. So like literally as we're about to take off, I'm eating meal one on the plane. And then like, right before we like white, when I landed, I ate my second meal and they were both warm still. Cause I have these thermoses. I packed some meals in my checked bag that were like f- just frozen. That I could, you know, cause my room had a hotel uh, fridge and microwave and stuff. And so I shared that stuff and people were like, do you always do this? Is this always necessary? And I'm like, absolutely not. I have never once done this in my entire life, but it's because <laughs> I've, ne- <laughs> I've never traveled during prep. Like yeah. next time I prep for a show, I'll do it again. But like my client who's not prepping, I don't expect you to do it. Like I, I you know, I, I have a couple of people that are in their prep. I'm going to suggest they do it. If they're flying somewhere really close to, you know, like I had a, a client who went to Bali, his wife surprised him with a birthday gift. Uh, he, he's a guy in New Zealand and he flew out to Bali. It was like, I think he, we had, he got back and we had three weeks before his show. And then he, it was like a smaller show, but he had to qualify in top three in order to proceed into the nationals out there, which he did. So he's actually competing this weekend uh, for national. But like, that was a trip where I was like, oh, you're going to Bali. And he's like, it was a surprise gift for my wife. I, I can't tell her no. So we like, 
we had to plan quite a bit for that, you know, and it wasn't something normally a client's going to Bali. I'm like, dude, have a blast. Don't text me. Don't look at my fitness pal. Like just do your thing. It's Bali. It's gonna be a blast. But he's three weeks out from a show and he wants to qualify for a bigger show and he has to place in this one. You know what I mean? So I think there's situations too, where some of these things we go, okay, maybe it is kind of stressful to implement this, but if it's more stressful to not implement this because the repercussion of you not implementing it will cause negative effects. That's a different story. And that just depends on the, probably the uh, extreme or specificity of the goal, I guess. Yeah. I think that's a great example because it makes me think of a lot of, I'm peaking quite a few clients at the moment and they are like on meal plans and they're monitoring their sodium, their fluid intake. And like, Mm -hmm. there's no way you need to do that sort of shit in an off season. Like you can be so much more flexible the stress of having to maintain that, like I can remember doing that in my last, like, I don't know how many shows I was doing. I was just like, man, I'm so happy to be done and I can just drink freely and not worry about sodium because like, I didn't want to have those variables off because it impacts like your look and the scale weight. And it's just a variable you don't want to have to manage. But in an off season, like you, that's not sustainable long-term like to, yeah. to be that way. And the results just aren't worth it because we know like muscle growth is macro and uh calorie yeah. surplus driven like it's not we don't have to control if we're holding water or not on a given day like it's just not important yeah. so i think you bring a, a great example of another way like if not just for you it's also the timing of that like is that kind of the investment worth the extra co- like benefit i'm just gonna say this real quick because i think it's funny it just brought up a I think I heard you say this. If it's somebody else, you can correct me. But I want to say like you ate like cold potatoes and egg whites on a plane or something like that. that As you were talking me through your meal prep, I was like, man, that sounds like a way better approach than what I took. (laughs) You're completely right. My, um, I froze egg whites. I froze like an egg white and potato meal. And I thought it would be defrosted by the time I got on the plane, but it was still just rock solid. And I... They brought like the warm food round and I was trying to use that warm food to like defrost my meal. And I was like sitting on my food and yeah, I ended up eating it frozen, but I was just like, I don't want to mess around. And that ultimately, like, I'm, I'm glad I did that because I think there's just something to sticking to it no matter what. But when I got into Vegas, uh, I couldn't eat my meals, like my normal meals that I was having. Like I, I didn't have a microwave. I just had a fridge. So I had to go to just like one of their local supermarkets. I was like, man, my potassium's way different because I'm not getting in this potato. And I'm like, man, I'll buy bananas. Man, bananas have so much less potassium per 100 grams than potato. And I was like, yeah. it's like that ended up becoming, in hindsight, I stressed about that more than I needed to. Like the body is mm-hmm. smarter than we give it kind of credit for. And if I just chilled out about that situation, I think I would have, like the result would have been the same no matter what. Whereas I was trying to like work out potassium sodium ratios at the time where you, you just don't yeah. need that level of precision, you know, like hitting macros or calories to the gram. Like you, you don't need that level of precision ever, but you want more precision towards the end of prep. Just, I, I probably took it a little bit too far. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you were on a long flight. I mean, from London all the way to Vegas is a big flight, you know? So yeah, um, I think it was 11 hours. Yeah. So dude, on Amazon, 20 bucks, you can get like a thermist container, keeps food warm for up to 12 hours or cold. So I had one of them was like, overnight oats basically and one of them was like hot protein oats and nice it was perfect so but man i I could probably keep going on and we're gonna wrap it up there because i think uh, i want to you know respect your time we're we're already at an hour which usually i try to keep these uh, just under an hour but so easy to talk to you man about all this stuff so i want to real quick just uh shout out your podcast your website your instagram all that kind of stuff so people can follow you if you can just list those out real quick so we can get those in the description before we sign out 
Yeah, for sure. No, thank you. It's, yeah, like you said, it's easy to chat and you could talk about these things forever because it's just our, our interest and our like passion. So yeah, if people want to listen to the podcast, uh, the Revive Stronger podcast, we also have like a sister or brother podcast, The Improvement Season. They're separated over on like podcast platforms, but on YouTube, they're both in the same place. You can find us on any podcast platform. I'm Revive Stronger over on Instagram. Um, that's the easiest and best place for people if they want to kind of drop me a DM or anything like that. And then our website is revivestronger.com. Uh, and that has everything on there that you could possibly hope for from our coaching to the podcast and Instagram. So you can kind of view that there. So yeah, I appreciate the time. Thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely, man. It's been great. And I will link all those in the description for you guys. So you guys can go check those out. As always, uh, leave us a five-star rating and review. And if you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with a friend. Take a screenshot and share it on Instagram. Tag both myself at Cody McBroom and tag Steve at Revive Stronger so we can thank you for listening. We appreciate you guys listening and we'll catch you next time.